This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith fam, we have with us one of the people I actually built Good Faith efforts specifically so I'd have an excuse to interview. He's a tech entrepreneur, best-selling author of Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune, and Random Failure in Silicon Valley, which is awesome, and I encourage you to buy it. And now, most recently, author and proprietor of the phenomenal substack, The Pull Request, of which I'm now a proud paying subscriber. He's Antonio Garcia Martinez, and we're going to talk about questions. So let me quickly set this up as an introduction. I want to focus on Abraham's journey from Mesopotamia to the land of Canaan. So what would eventually become the Holy Land. And this is actually the portion of the book of Genesis that Jews around the world are all reading this week. So it's been on my mind. Now this journey, this moment when God chooses Abraham, this is the most important journey in the history of human morality. And probably the most famous after, I guess, like the Israelite journey from Egypt to the promised land. They're like Paul on the road to Damascus, if I'm being fair. So it's pretty astonishing that nowhere, not once, anywhere in the entire Bible, Does God or anyone else ever supply a reason as to why God chose Abraham? We're just dropped in media rest into the story of Abraham and Sarah, and the Bible never looks back. It's like watching the beginning of Memento, except you never end up learning the backstory. So it's like the first five minutes of Memento, and that's it. So why? How could the Bible not give a reason for its central motif, the chosenness of God's people, the responsibilities it imposes? Now, in a certain sense, it's here that ancient Jewish tradition, especially the literature of the rabbis going back 2,000 years at least, comes to the rescue. The rabbis suggest at least a dozen, if not more, reasons that God might have chosen Abraham. So perhaps he was the first person to discover monotheism, or maybe he was especially righteous, or perhaps he invented moral counterculture and opposing Mesopotamian tyranny, or maybe, according to one like wild rabbinic tradition, actually from the 9th century, which I love... It was totally random. God actually chose people at random. And the point being that chosenness isn't about superiority. It's about responsibility. So who cares why you're chosen? But in truth, the very existence of so many different answers, some of which are mutually exclusive, is indicative of the fact that the rabbis just gleefully embrace the chaos of not actually knowing the answer. Because ultimately, there is no answer in the sense of the one answer. That's not how biblical morality works. The Hebrew Bible demands decisive, committed action. And yes, those actions are mostly just like incoherent without committing to certain bedrock beliefs. But biblical morality is most definitely not a morality that requires or even desires like answers, easy or otherwise. Biblical morality is all about living life in the questions. And Judaism, as a consequence, is a religion of questions. And this, in fact, is why I've always found conversion to Judaism fascinating and absolutely inspiring Because a convert in the conventional sense, anthropologically, is typically someone looking for answers. So I certainly get why a person like that would choose a religion that provides answers, and more specifically claims to provide the answer to life's great questions. But converts who choose Judaism aren't actually choosing answers. They're just choosing different and many more, and in my opinion, better questions. So to me, that requires remarkable intellectual and spiritual fortitude 
and heroism, the sort that I also think is especially critical in this era as the human capacity for innovation expands, bringing new and more interesting questions onto our moral horizons by the day. So to unpack all of this, I figured I'd speak to someone who's recently undertaken this spiritual journey and who also has thought and built extensively in the world of innovation. He's founder, he's an entrepreneur, He's a best-selling author, and he's the person behind the fantastic Substack, The Pull Request. He's Antonio Garcia Martinez. Antonio, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Quite the introduction from Genesis to this. <laughs> Let's do it, baby. So I'm like interested in all the things about you that people usually like skip over. So I usually tell people I'm a connoisseur of like ESPN and Sports Illustrated and the athletic stories about the NBA. And I have like a whole Google Doc of this stuff where it'll be like somebody on the heat got injured and even Strauss or whoever will interview Jimmy Butler and be like, so I spoke to Jimmy Butler after he came out of his weekly Bible study in the heat locker room. And here's what he had to say about the injury. And then I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. <laughs> whoa, what was going on in that Bible study? <laughs> like that's the article I want to read. So I think when people think about you, technologist, builder, Facebook, author, go on down the line. I want to know your journey to Jewishness. Like, I want to explore that journey. Where did you start from and where did you go from there? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny. I, I get asked this question a lot. And in fact, I'm working on a post called Why Judaism just to finally answer it. Like when I get asked the question, yeah. I can just point to a thing <laughs> and just not have to answer the question anymore. Um, <laughs> I have it well, pre-bookmarked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a few reasons. Some of them are just way more tactical. Tactical Judaism, my favorite. <laughs> exactly, exactly, tactical Judaism. I have three Jewish kids. Nice. And so clearly that also implies, uh, well, in my case, two Jewish mothers. And so clearly there's some affinity with Judaism there. And then two, yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of factors at work. I mean, one is we're in this odd point in American history where like, A, most Americans love nothing more than themselves, right? There's no cause or entity that's greater than them in some sense. And then the other is the only functioning organization they're exposed to or are a part of is a corporation, which... You know, nothing against corporations. I've worked in them, nothing against capitalism per se, but I think it's a very unbalanced and kind of denuded society if the only functioning organization you see is a for-profit company. And I think this is a separate thread, but a lot of the reason why we're seeing so much sort of political religiosity inside companies like my brief and former employer, Apple facing employee revolt after employee revolt, <laughs> is that people are using their companies in place of employment as their sort of religious revival tent for whatever their, their pet causes of the moment, which is an odd conflation. This typically didn't it, happen in the past. It really is the third great awakening. No, no, exactly. But it's weird that's getting channeled into vectors that it kind of hadn't been in the past, right? Um, so with all that as backdrop, you know, it's one of these things when I, I don't know or if you have kids, but four. Now we're talking. <laughs> four, yeah, okay. Right, well, for, those who, for those who don't have kids, I mean, there's definitely something and, and there in fact is something that goes on in your brain when you have kids, like your view of the world completely changes. And a lot of the questions that thoughtful people ask themselves, like, you know, what is the good? What do I believe in? All these things that were kind of parlor questions or philosophical debates after the fifth beer or the second bong hit or whatever, they become very real because you're responsible for humans and their upbringing. And, you know, I see my kids and this is maybe somewhat narcissistic as almost like this little bottle that you're putting a message in and casting into the oceans of eternity. And yeah. in some sense, you have to figure out what to put in that bottle. <laughs> and suddenly question these questions that, again, typically were just debating points on Twitter become very real when you've got 
a tiny little face that looks like you're staring at you asking you a question, right? And so that's when you have to up your game and actually start taking a stance. And a lot of these debates that before were very virtual. So two of the kids are semi-reformy sort of observant. And then the third kid is a bit of debate with the mother, despite the fact that she's the granddaughter of Auschwitz survivors about wow. actually how much Judaism is the kid can experience. And I probably shouldn't say this because she might listen to this and then figure out my plan. But I, <laughs> I figured out that in fact, her Judaism is basically the average of zero and my observance. And so, like, <laughs> and so, and so I'm, I'm semi-observant conservative, which means she's at like weak reform. So if I go full Hasid, she's going to go to conservative. And so I, I literally, <laughs> I was going to say it's, it's really just triangulation. Exactly. I, I mean, it's like, listen, like between myself and Warren Buffett, our average net worth is really yeah, exactly. high. You know? <laughs> exactly. And so, so far the plan has actually worked out pretty well. The kid went to like JCC summer camp and stuff. So, so, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that, that was part of it. And then also, I mean, aside from the kid thing, you know, I find it personally intellectually interesting. You know, it, it's a weird thing, but, you know, raised in like the Miami Cuban diaspora, it's a very similar sort of vibe to the Jewish diaspora one of this sort of ritualized collective nostalgia. In Miami, for a while, literally a toast, you would say next year in Havana, just as we just did at the end of Amazing. Yom Kippur last week. And it's this weird feeling of like minority uncertainty, but also mild superiority. It's this very bizarre schizophrenic existence that you live. So I think that worldview is actually not as foreign as it might seem, given my upbringing in some sense. Although, strictly speaking, my family was not a Juban one, i.e. The, there, there is actually a fairly sizable Cuban Jewish population in Miami, but I, strictly speaking, did not come out of that milieu. So I actually want to want to go there. I, I was planning to wait on this till okay. later in the interview, but I actually want to go right there since you brought it up. I actually remember thinking during the protests in Cuba in July, I don't know that much about Cuba and I, I feel that I'm sort of investing here in sort of rational ignorance. I don't know that much about Cuba, but I know enough from being Jewish and caring about Israel to guess what a lot of Cuban Americans, not to mention Cubans living in Cuba, although they were facing more dire problems, must think about how Westerners are covering them. And particularly how Americans are covering them, like that thing where Americans insist on projecting the American story and American anxieties about race or politics onto like every conflict across the yeah. globe. So how did that shake out in coverage on Cuba this past summer? And how does it compare to coverage of Israel for someone like you who's got a stake in both? Yeah, yeah. No, I think the analogy you're citing, I think I, I might even have made a similar analogy on Twitter at some point when I was tweeting up a storm around Cuba is very similar in that. <laughs> You know, and I don't necessarily mean this as a major ding, but part of American imperial privilege, right, is like in some sense, never seeing the edges of your own sort of worldview. And to the extent that other non-American figures appear, they're kind of extensions of your own external neuroses. And um, that's just the way it works. I mean, you know, the Romans didn't seem to be particularly informed or curious about the Gauls either, right? Right, right. <laughs> just, that's the way sort of imperial peoples work. They were just like Goths with funny Right, hats, right. And they, you know. you know, they got them all wrong. They thought they were barbarians, et cetera. Right. So I think there's something very similar that the U.S. tends to kind of project the outside world into its own framework, often in ways that are, to be honest, kind of almost comically wrong in a way, like projecting a lot of American racial politics on Israel-Palestine, for example, is just kind of absurd. Right. So in the, in the case of the Cuba thing, there's a slight racialization. I mean, BLM came out and said something that almost everybody pans as dumb around the, the Cuban thing, because of course, some of the biggest voices in the Cuban protests were actually, you know, Afro-Cubans or or what, I guess what we would call blacks. Right. So anyway, I, I don't think there's really a racial lens one can apply to the Cuba thing. You know, I have to say, rather than just be pessimistic, I have to say in general, as someone who's been in like the mainstream Anglo non-Miami world for the past 20 years and often been called to say, so what does Miami Cuban exile family person think of Cuba? Right. And typically the answers that you get or the view of Cuba 
skew heavily left. Cuba is like this weird, cute, kind of sexy emanation of Soviet communism in the Western hemisphere that people are sympathetic to for some reason, even though it's kind of a horror show. And having to start from a point of which, oh, you have a Che Guevara t-shirt that you used to wear in college, trying to explain the reality of it. I find that these days it's not quite as bad. And in fact, you know, only the most old school diehard communist or whatever would actually get up and still support the Cuban government now. Well, I think 10 years ago, you'd hear the whole, oh, but the healthcare is so great or whatever. Well, guess what? Thanks to social media, here's a live stream inside a Cuban hospital and it's kind of a disaster and this is not good. And you can't really stand behind this and say, this is some great socialist triumph. And so I think the burden of explanation of what Cuba is like to people who maybe obviously don't spend as much time in it is because, you know, it's a small thing in the scheme of things. I think that burden is actually less now than it used to be. It's actually not quite as bad. I think people are, are come at it like you do, which is like, you know, open mind. I don't know a lot about it. I'm interested to hear about it. And, and I don't come in it with a lot of prefigured biases, which is good. I think it's progress. That is good on the whole. And speaking of narrative trajectories, we recently had David Brooks on the pod. And one of the things I spoke to him about was Judd Apatow has this great thing when he talks about Superbad. He gave an interview about Superbad where he says, I always insist on people I'm working with understanding the difference between plot and story. So the plot of Superbad is two kids who are trying to get to a party and there are all these obstacles that get in their way. The story of Superbad is about two people who need to confront the fact that they are currently in the waning hours of spending time with their best friend and probably the best friend they'll ever have for the rest of their lives. And it's kind of grappling with the ephemerality, but also the critical importance of loyalty and friendship and love and so forth. And it strikes me that you can obviously do that with movies. You could do it with great literature, but you could probably also do it with religions and how they shake out in society. And for somebody like you, who's both kind of straddling the worlds of Judaism and Christianity, but also who I know thinks about and is really interested in about these things, how would you think about, I know this is a huge question, so we could break it down, but how would you think about the plot versus the story of Judaism versus the plot versus the story of Christianity? Like, you know, the plot of Judaism and the plot of Christianity, I think people are broadly familiar with, but what's the story of Judaism, the story of Christianity? Yeah, no, that's a good question. It's funny. What comes to mind, I'm reading this book. You're probably reading it too, because like all of Jewish Twitter is <laughs> from Dara Horn's uh, People Love Dead Jews. We produce that oh, podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so for your listeners that maybe aren't familiar, you know, it's Dara Horn wrote something like 12 essays. It's a great book. And the whole theme is people kind of love dead Jews. There's a lot of dead Jew tourism in the world to use her very blunt language. But, you know, live Jews, you know, they're not so excited about that, actually. <laughs> and, she, right, and she cites right. the funny story of, I guess, an employee at the Anne Frank house who was asked to take off his keep. <laughs> and she has a great line where she, she's like, <laughs> it took a remarkably long time for the Anne Frank house to realize the inadvisability of forcing Jews to hide in their Judaism. <laughs> I think eventually there was such a ridiculous, ironic hubbub. He was allowed to wear it again or whatever, but that's just kind of an example of how. We'll put that in the wind yeah. column. <laughs> right. And so there's a lot in there, but one of the essays, she cites the fact, um, well, she, she got a piece of reader email that basically complained one of her previous novels that I haven't read didn't have an uplifting ending, right? And the, the story of Christianity is the happy ending, so to speak. It's either the everlasting life, which is how it's framed now, or in the early Christians, literally the second coming of Christ in the Messianic age, right? That the belief in the Messiah and the millenarian prophecy is the ultimate happy ending. <laughs> that is that is literally right. the <laughs> kingdom of God on earth. It is the happy ending to end all happy endings. And every Christian story in the US in particular needs to have some sort of 
uplifting and happy ending at the end of it. And she cites the example, well, Jews don't look at the world that way, right? The Tanakh ends unknown. Moses dies, they're sort of about to enter, and then that's it. <laughs> it was this massive lead up, and then just the movie ends, and that's it, right? And, it's like, and there's no necessary happy ending, right? Because it, you know, Judaism doesn't think the Messiah is, I mean, there is a messianic thinking, obviously, in Judaism, but they don't think that it's imminent in the way that Christians do. And so that, I would say, is the difference Maybe a better way to distill this is that I think Judaism is very worldly, right? And Christianity is very otherworldly. Christianity is always trying to reconcile, again, whatever their vision of the kingdom of God is, whether it be like the literal kingdom of God for an evangelical Christian, or whether it be some social justice movement and eventually resolving whatever social justice issues, they're always trying to reconcile an ugly, imperfect reality with some ideal of divine perfection. That to me is the Christian story. And I think the Jewish story is very, very different (laughs) than that. I actually want to come at this maybe from another angle, too, because as you were speaking, this actually occurred to me. So if I recall correctly, I think it's Ross Douthat who has a column from years ago where he observed that Jews don't write epic fantasy. And one response that he received, and I don't remember from whom, was that, you know, arguably like the most complex fantastical literature ever created was authored by Jews, namely like the superhero comic book genre. But what I'm wondering is this, right? Is it significant that Christian fantasy takes place in entirely new worlds, like created from whole cloth? So like Middle Earth and Lord of the Rings or Narnia and C.S. Lewis or The Wheel of Time, Robert Jordan, while Jewish fantasy takes place in our world, just like somewhat reimagined, right? Like Spider-Man is literally from Queens, like he's from Forest Hills. Batman's Gotham is just a version of New York City, as is Metropolis, right? So is there a significance to the fact that you even find that difference in Christian and Jewish fiction? Maybe. I mean, I a lot of that sort of fantasy elements you see specifically in, in Northern European Christianity, right? So putting on my Catholic hat for a second, you know, it's these... As opposed to the Jewish hat that you're literally wearing right now. As opposed to the Jewish hat right that I'm, in fact, actually <laughs> literally wearing. Love the Amaga. <laughs> the, uh, you know, the Northerners were, you know, barely Christianized pagans, right? And so a lot of the... I mean, certainly in the case of Tolkien, say, a lot of that came from the sort of pre-Christian pagan era of, you know, fairies and dwarves and whatnot. And so I think a lot of that still survives in Northern Europe as a, as a vital cultural force. If you go to Southern Europe, it's not that I think Spanish or Italian or French writers are less imaginative. I just don't think that the fairy filled forests of the sort of pre-Christian pagan past is something that's vital and alive to them. It isn't. Again, like I said, I think all aspect of Judaism's right. And, And Judaism has just as much mysticism and sort of abstract thinking, right? There's not, obviously it's not an animist sort of, of religion, um, but it's it's through what you do. It's it's your practice, right? I mean, we everyone knows this is Jews. They're very worldly, right? In the middle of the Yom Kippur thing, there was like a pitch for more donations to the synagogue, right? And that just seemed like, right. or people pray at the Western Wall with, you know, an M4 carbine slung on their back and a military uniform and the mixing of the military and organized violence and religion. Again, it's not necessarily contradictory. While in Christianity, again, I think at least when you're speaking in the spiritual, in the, in the sort of normative spiritual mode of this is how the world should be, they very much assume a sort of fantastical, utopic vision of the world. And I think just Jews just don't. <laughs> They've never had the luxury of, of doing so. I think like part of the issue as I typically think about it is that I think just most people aren't as familiar with classical foundational Jewish texts. And while normally I'd forgive that, I feel like it's kind of a crime that the Talmud, let's say, is not better known like in Silicon Valley, like I feel like people are obsessed with stoicism. Like, why isn't the Talmud something? It could be because it's complex and great literature is somewhat inaccessible. But why isn't the Talmud better known? Or am I wrong? And it's starting to be better known. Like, I feel like for a world that's grappling with complexity and multivocality, it seems to me there there really isn't anything 
with within like remote shouting distance of the Talmud that can allow us to tackle that, right? I th- I think it's just it's too many bridges too far from like mm. mainstream secular thinking. I think the Bible could could still be potentially. I think what uh, Safari is doing is really cool, right? Which for those who don't know, it's this online repository of all these Jewish texts and translation. Yeah. Right. But, you know, even I who, you know, read the Bible in in high school, I went to a Jesuit high school. And so there was a whole year of, again, what Christians would call the Old Testament. And, and, you know, we read like the annotated version of all the notes and we didn't read it in Greek or Aramaic or anything, but certainly not Hebrew. But (laughs) but there's definitely, you know, biblical scholarship. But I think Talmud is like a whole nother level. And it's just so vast and enormous. I mean, this is part of my own grappling with Judaism as a religion. You know, the Jews perceive the religious practice in a super legalistic way. I mean, every Jew almost has to be like a pro bono lawyer for their own <laughs> religious exercise, right? And that is, in some sense, their their route to religious truth is that. It's, it's you know, one of the elements of the no-eyed laws that, you know, Jews would, in some sense, insist that non-Jews even have is setting up legal courts, right? So that to them is like bare minimum civilization. If you don't do that, you're a barbarian, basically, who's <laughs> just beyond the pale of people we're willing to deal with. But that, you know, that's a very foundational thing, the fact that, um, religious practice is effectively an ongoing Supreme Court session. And I think it's it's hard for people to conceptualize that, particularly in a Christian world. Again, take as an example, this almost the synonymous use of faith with religion in the Western Christian world, which is weird, right? Many religions, I mean, there's always some element of faith, but it's not the key thing. While in Christianity, accepting Christ as your savior and whatnot in a very personal relationship is, is almost synonymous with the religious practice, right? You can't not have that and still consider yourself a Christian in a way. While I think the varying views of whether God exists and whether he acts in the world or not among the various branches of Judaism is interesting, even though they all agree on what the practice of Judaism should sort of be to some degree. I think it's just a different way of looking at religiosity. I think it's just difficult for non, non-Jews to, to get that aspect of it. Hold on just one sec. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. So how does that wider story, Christianity and Judaism, faith, sort of embodied tradition. How does that help you think about wokeness? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the wokeness thing, I've written a lot about this, right? And this is not a unique position, but, you know, it's it's obviously a form of sort of heretical Christianity, a very Protestant Christianity, right? A certain Puritanism that's kind of revived. There's a lot of jokes you can make. I've often joked that Christianity is like Judaism with product market fit and a growth team, right? It's like <laughs> if you took some weird little social network that's obviously kind of interesting, but like not going to be widely adapted and you got Facebook growth PMs on it and turn it into a new thing that became Facebook. Like that is literally the relationship between Christianity and Judaism, right? And so it's like Rebecca Kiva, baby, this kosher yeah, thing. Like, yeah, not yeah, it's into not it. Gonna, like, not going to work, man. <laughs> you, yeah. Guys, the dashboards, the dashboards tell the story. Like yeah, you just exactly. got to. The, the literal <laughs> conversion awesome. rate is very low. Conversion rate, of course, being what you say in e-commerce. <laughs> but, you know, so there's lots of aspects of Christianity that are like some totally blown up version of a Jewish concept. But I think the one unique thing that Christianity gets that, I don't know, maybe you would claim exists in Judaism, but I think it's been so blown up that at this point it's become a qualitatively different thing. It's the elevation of the Christ figure, sort of the the moral inversion of the, the last shall be first, first shall be last. Again, when you think about it, when you yank yourself out of the Christian worldview, either through Judaic thought or whatever, and you just think that this is a religion that in some sense in every temple has this alleged criminal being tortured to death in a very gory fashion, and that that, that is the symbol of divinity on earth. It's very weird when you think about it, right? Obviously, it's a very popular message. Um, you know, it's billions of people believe that. But um, that's one thing that I think is uniquely Christian. And I think you see a lot of that in, in wokeness. And in fact, Rene Girard, who is a very recent Catholic thinker who thought a lot about the sort of narrative aspects of Christianity, what it does in social life, 
he also pointed to it as one of the weirdest things that Christianity does and that, yeah, an, an overzealous Christianity would end up with almost victim worship, worshiping that victimhood, and it would get us to the point of absurdities in which we would just sit there and think about nothing but victimhood. There's actually a passage in his I Saw Satan Fall Like Lightning in which he kind of describes the woke movement as an extreme version of Christianity. I slightly forgot your initial question about whether we're tying this to Christianity or Judaism, but I would say wokeness is definitely part of Christianity. <laughs> and I, I would also say that the element of Judaism that does exist in Christianity, there's, I mean, all these versions of Christianity, their various heretical mistakes they make are analogous to heresies that existed in Christianity in the early time. One of them is called Marcionism, which was a belief that the Judaic history of, of Christianity should be rejected. What they would call the Old Testament should just be forgotten about. And that Christianity's only holy scripture should be the gospels and Paul and all the rest of it. Right. So there's this guy, Marcion of Pontus, who comes along and he basically is the first person to create like a canon. So he has the epistles of Paul and he has something that probably is the gospel of Luke. And he basically says, this is the scripture and it's incompatible with what Christians, let's say, would call the Old Testament. And it's so incompatible that, in fact, the God of the Old Testament is not the same God as the God of the of the gospels and of the epistles of Paul. Because the God, the God of the Old Testament is sort of this like angry, mean, venal God whom Marcion calls the Demiurge. And it's sort of, yes, like that's that's like the original, I'd say, like heretical impulse in Christianity. Right. And we're seeing that now. Right. Because in some sense, if if you totally reject, you know, the, the God of, of wrath and fury and the Ten Commandments, if you literally just take the Gospels absolutely literally again, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, it's a, it's a radical statement when you think about it. It's extraordinarily subversive then in some sense, it is incompatible, right? With, I think, the God of the Old Testament. And a lot of the questions that Christianity asked itself, like, how is it that, I mean, well, to quote a rabbi's book, how, how is it that bad things happen to good people, right? The theodicy problem, right? I think that problem is right. particularly acute if you think, I think it says in the Gospel of John, God is love. Well, if God is love, you know, why is there emphysema? <laughs> or like, why is there various illnesses? I, you know, I think, maybe you disagree, but I think in Judaism, that problem is slightly less acute and that you don't assume that God has God has lots of things. Right, right, right. I mean, you know, God ordered Aaron to basically commit genocide against every other Canaanite people in, in the land of Israel at the time. You know, that's what God said to do. So I actually wonder, now that you're mentioning it, to the extent that wokeness is like a is sort of a particularly Christian heresy, how much is it a heresy, perhaps specifically of imperial Christianity? The reason I ask that is because I actually spoke about this in the pod a couple episodes ago, but I remember reading a wonderful book by Iran Shalev called American Zion, which talks about sort of the reception history of the Bible and particularly of the Hebrew Bible in the American consciousness. And one of the points that he makes is that the high watermark of usage of the Hebrew Bible in American society is kind of like between the Revolutionary Period and the Civil War. And the Civil War, according to the conventional history, which Shalev actually adopts, that's when things break apart and the American intelligentsia just like either stops using the Bible at all, which would be several decades later, but at first they stop using the Hebrew Bible and start going more towards the Gospels and so on and so forth. And he has this footnote, which blew my mind the first time I read it, because I'm like, how is this a footnote? Where he says... On the eve of the Civil War, especially amongst abolitionists, that's when the Hebrew Bible really falls away and we start to turn towards the Gospels in the New Testament. Footnote, except in the African-American community. There, the Hebrew Bible is still the primary text and would remain so for like the rest of American history. And I'm like, well, that seems like quite a qualifier, right? Like the, the Hebrew Bible falls apart except for the community that's enslaved. So one of the things I'm wondering is like now there's sort of this parallel where if you separate between wokeness and noticing and wanting to do something about injustices and if you're able to distinguish between those two things which i think like straightforwardly we should so i think it's really telling that 
And this bears out in public opinion data and this bears out in just sort of observations about our elite media and other elite spaces, like the worst performative wokeness and the most abusive form of it is like an affluent white phenomenon. And it's like in all the wealthiest schools and it's all like the, you know, white people who own corporations and so on and so forth. And I I wonder how much, therefore, it's kind of like a parallel to specifically white abandonment of the Hebrew Bible on the eve of the Civil War in sort of white-led abolitionist movements where it's sort of like that's your way. Like this particular type of heresy is a way of reckoning with just overwhelming power. And so we shouldn't be surprised that to the extent that wokeness becomes a tool of power, that it is a specifically Christian heresy, as you're describing. Whereas I think like even today, and certainly if you go back to the civil rights movement, it's not a mistake that in minority communities, whether it's the black community, whether it's various Hispanic communities, whether it's the Jewish community, I think there's like much more of a focus on an affinity for, you know, what you might call the Old Testament, what we'd call the Hebrew Bible, because we're specifically not sort of imperial powers, right? Like, does that strike you as as on the mark? I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're citing the example of, I guess, black Americans who, from my understanding, kind of drew an analogy with the the enslaved Hebrews, right? And Pharaoh being right. sort of Jim Crow, which, you know, I think is a very good historical analogy to cite. Yeah. But even the idea of like Moses as like a political liberator, which actually doesn't appear in the Hebrew tradition, even through the Middle Ages, like you like that really is invented by the spirituals. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think there's probably something to that. I mean, it's certainly the case that if you walk around San Francisco, it's the most posh neighborhoods that have the most BLM signs, <laughs> which is really <laughs> something. I think that's right. I mean, I think the, again, Christianity, and I hate to sound like I'm like this apostate who's just like dunking on it, but in some sense, <laughs> um, Rob Henderson has this great view called luxury beliefs, right? It's like these well-meaning beliefs that you kind of want to be true and that the wealthy can afford to sort of indulge, even though they don't necessarily execute in their actual lives, but that it's something that's good to show off, right? And so I do think that the Christian mindset, which is, you know, defund the police, right? Only someone who lives in an area with low crime or has the private means to avoid the outcome of there being no police would say defund the police. If you actually look at the popularity of defund the police among minority communities, it's extraordinarily unpopular because like, what are you you talking about? Are you kidding? (laughs) It's like a recipe for disaster. Right. And they they would actually bear the brunt of that misguided policy while many of the defund the police people wouldn't. Rome will be just fine. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Right. Like the Senate will be fine. (laughs) The senators will be just fine. So yeah, I agree. A certain belief and a certain wrathful God and a certain law and order, like, hey, here are the Ten Commandments and we all have to follow them. Otherwise, no. Yeah, I think Christian beliefs are kind of a luxury, an imperial luxury of an elite class. Again, it's I think it's difficult for truly Christian societies, a society based on like a Marcionite society that takes the gospel message as the sole message of Christianity. It's difficult for that society to deal with the real world, right? Because the real world does not work along Christian lines. It just doesn't. You know, Christ was kind of a hippy-dippy peacenik is what he was, which is great, but that's just not that's not that's not going to help you in Afghanistan. That's not going to help you in the Middle East. That's not going to help you in lots of places. And to be fair, like th- those strands do come out of Judaism and out of the Hebrew prophets. Yeah. Like there is that that sure. element there. Like I want to be fair yeah. to it. You yeah, yeah, no, of mean? course. And then Jewish prescriptions around gleanings and jubilee years and but again, I think the focus on law in Judaism kind of saves you. That's why I think Marcionism is a heresy, right? You need the hardness of the tablets to come in and smack you over the head. 
And that's what ultimately, like probably somewhere in Deuteronomy, two of the 613 mitzvot, you know, there's one that says, right, the commandments, the, the of, commandments the Jewish of Jewish religion. religion. It's literally from the same verse in Deuteronomy that I quote one of my pieces that's, you know, do not show the rich man any favor in court. And immediately it's, do not show any excessive sympathy to the poor in court either. To the poor version, <laughs> right? right. The fact that they're poor and in court doesn't mean that they're innocent. And again, an extreme Christianity forgets that. And I think that's what saves you from going off the deep end. If I were sort of taking like a, I don't mean this, this heretically, but if I were taking a quote unquote God's eye view of things, like you might say that like millenarianism, like the Christian impulse towards it, I think it's produced a lot of good also, meaning like the civil yeah. rights movement in some ways is kind of like incomprehensible without, and by the way, like one of the weird ticks of sort of secular receptions of Martin Luther King Jr. is that the most crucial element of King's thought without which the entire thing comes tumbling down is also the most for sort of secular receivers of King is also the most embarrassing part of it, which is the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Isn't that just magical thinking? Well, yeah, of course it's like quote unquote magical thinking, but it's not magical. It's like religious thinking. Yes. God was going to redeem the Israelites as absurd as that might sound. And if you operate with that belief, like you can accomplish something pretty like interesting and exciting with that. It's definitely the case that if, if you look at the record of Christianity in the past 200 years, one of my theories is that, you know, when, when God died, when Nietzsche killed God, right, in the 18th and 19th century, right. is when you start seeing a lot of the millenarian secular movements emerge, whether they be Marxism, suffragism of various flavors, abolitionism, all, right. all these very faith-based arc of the moral universe bends projects but as secular manifestations in this world here and now started around the same time. So that same Christian urge got supplemented mm. in a secular direction. And, and, and look, it's, it's true. At the end of the day, Christianity has created in many ways a fair, more just and like nicer world, right? Which is exceptional, right? right? It's, it's easy to make fun of the sort of woke extremes. But when you look at the entire arc of it over two or three hundred years, yeah, there has been a lot of good about imagining a better world um, and trying to make it happen. And I actually want to move from there to just kind of finish up and and talk about like the intellectual history of technology because I think there's so many interesting parallels there. So we're living in a world built by the scientific revolution like one way or another. But it seems to me that in terms of the paths taken or not taken, so there's a scientific revolution that we get and then there's one that we could have gotten. And the scientific revolution that we get is the materialist one for which like anything real needs to be you know, like explicable according to physical processes and easily predictable rules. And if it's not explicable this way, then it's not real and it's certainly not worth our time. So, you know, Thomas Hobbes, Pierre Gassendi, various materialist thinkers and doers. But then there's the scientific revolution that we could have gotten or that we almost got, which is rooted in this renaissance attitude towards knowledge where we want to know and investigate and glory in as much knowledge and experience as we can, which you know, which sees like the mysterious not as something to be scoffed at, but to be investigated and assimilated into our lives. So you see this in the Renaissance thinkers rediscovering and investigating classical and biblical antiquity, but you also see it in major figures like Isaac Newton or Henry Moore, who are deeply invested in studying like specifically Jewish mysticism or even like Paracelsus. Well, I mean, we're talking about a guy who's like burning books from Galen and Avicenna and throwing tradition out the window with one hand, but with the other hand, he's also deeply into Kabbalah and astrology and the occult. And I think we forget how much of the ambition of modern science we owe to this type of thinking, right? The one that revels in the mystical and often the traditional. So we basically had a choice of two scientific revolutions, right? One that narrows our focus right down to the material world alone. And then one that broadens our focus to include all knowledge, much more than even like the old, you know, Catholic scholasticism. 
So we have a scientific revolution that wants to provide answers to as many questions as possible and completely ignore the other ones. And then one that really just wanted to ask like more and more and more and more questions. And we end up choosing the narrow materialism, the scientific revolution of answers. And of course, much like sort of the Christian story that we just talked about, it does lead to some like amazing accomplishments and discoveries. And there's no doubt that it does a lot of good. But the more I've read your recent work and your conversations with Tom Holland and Rod Dreher, the more I wonder if we ended up choosing the Christian scientific revolution, the revolution of answers over the Jewish scientific revolution, right? Like the revolution of questions. And I'm not saying one would have been better than the other, but I'm saying from your vantage point as someone who's both a technologist and a student of Judaism and Christianity, how do you think about this? I think you're right. I mean, we live in this empirical materialist world that rejects basically all metaphysics, right? Meaning, which would I wouldn't say would include religion or other thought. And what I've realized is that if you live in a purely empirical society in which like literally citing a study is, is the only epistemology, then you don't even do empiricism well, right? Because at some point you do have to make metaphysical claims. And the only argument you can muster is again, a single link to a study with you know N equals 20, which is not even that respectable. And it's really just a ruse. And you're advocating an actual metaphysical belief that doesn't have empirical support, but that you know could be based on some other moral principle. So like take it as an example without jumping into that rabbit hole, like the COVID situation, right? Which is an empirical phenomenon, but there's metaphysical decisions to be made around it. Questions like, what is the duty of the citizen to the state? And does that include getting vaccinations? Is it worth sacrificing some of the old for the sake of educating the young, right? Like all these moral questions that in my opinion are what we should be asking and would help us answer questions around vaccine mandates or masks in schools. And once we're stepping into rabbit holes, like I don't understand how abortion debates are supposed to happen without metaphysical right. judgments. Like there is no like empirical, right. scientific, materialist reading of like when life begins and ends. Like I just don't get right. it. <laughs> right. And, th and that's the thing. And like I said, if you don't have some level of metaphysical armature of some sort of another, you end up having to warp reality to make your case. And then suddenly you're untethered from reality. And I think to be blunt, a smarter way to do it <laughs> would be to accept that, yes, in the realm of empiricism, empiricism rules. I mean, no one is claiming dwarves and fairies or whatever, but when you're actually outside of empiricism, I, I don't see why it rules. I mean, there's many things that there is no empirical answer to. And if you do that, then yeah, then it gets weird. And I think these are questions society isn't willing to ask themselves because, you know, we're locked, you know, we tend to think in utilitarian ways, which is almost a way of empiricism applied to the metaphysical realm. Oh, you just do the ethics by Excel spreadsheet. You add up the positive and negative hedons or whatever Bentham called them. And then you get the answer and you decide. But the reality is, again, in all the burning issues that we're discussing, like say abortion or COVID or whatever, the question is, what are the infinities in that Excel spreadsheet that dominate and mean that you don't actually go with the arithmetic answer, you go out with some other answer, right? And what those infinities are is, is the, the entire challenge of this conversation. And if you go there, then at some point, yeah, you're either pointing to some document or some body of knowledge and say, look, at the end of the day, these are the moral and political and, and philosophical axioms of my worldview. And if we can't agree on this, we just live in different moral universes and that's the end of it, right? And whether that be the US constitution or the Hebrew Bible or whatever, at some point you're pointing to a document saying, this is true and we build from this. And I think anyone who thinks otherwise, that that's a backwards belief, is, is, is doing it already just in an inferior and perhaps subconscious way. So the last question I wanted to ask you is that, so when this episode airs, we Jews will recently have celebrated the holiday of Sukkot, which famously for fans of 30 Rock is the Jewish holiday that Jack Donaghy uses as an example of a holiday that nobody cares about <laughs> and therefore Josh can't have off on it. So as somebody who's like relatively, you know, recent to the interior experience of the holiday, so... 
if you had to explain Sukkot to somebody who like doesn't know much about Judaism, so it's like a B-side, right? Like, how are you explaining that like, you know, third Nirvana album to people? <laughs> it's funny, I got asked this question recently and I described it. Sukkot is like Burning Man, but for Jews. That's what it is. <laughs> oh my God, that's exactly, yeah, exactly. what it is. For, for no apparent reason, you're going and living in a tent. There is some weird story about wandering in the desert. It's all very festive and you do shit. You would never do it. And it lasts a week. It's basically Burning Man for Jews. That, that's what it is. <laughs> and by the way, like even in Jewish law, like that was the occasion when people would gather together in Jerusalem and like hear the Torah being read out. Like there was a concert. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's a Jewish burning. It's exactly, it's exactly, that's what it is. It's like. It culminates with some Chat Torah. There's like dancing and drinking and, you know, a lot of spirituality. It's, it's so <laughs> yeah. funny. Wow. Jewish Burning Man. There's no better place to end than that. Antonio, thank you so much for being a part of this. No, no. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Amen, brother. What are the stories we are telling as a society? I cannot stress enough how important it is to think about these questions because so much of what we both love and dislike or want to fix about society actually starts with that question. Now, don't get me wrong, there's room for multiple stories. Each one has unique strengths, and America can and should celebrate that. But we shouldn't mistake broad-mindedness for apathy or anything goes. So if we want to start somewhere as caring, educated citizens, I'd say a good place is with just cracking open the Bible, start from Genesis, and just get to reading and see where that takes you. You may be pleasantly surprised by what you find. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, and if you like what you heard, just head right into Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Okay, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. 